Hello again, it's On Mike with Jordan Rich, interviews and conversations with interesting and inspiring people, with topics ranging from the arts and sciences to politics, business, lifestyle, philosophy, and much, much more. Today, we welcome two guests, both professors at Harvard University, Colleen Ammerman and Boris Groisberg. They've co-authored a new book called Glass Half Broken, Shattering the Barriers That Still Hold Women Back at Work. Even in fields where the numbers of men and women are roughly equal, or where women actually make up the majority, leadership ranks remain male-dominated. Which begs the question, why haven't women made more progress? Well, let's talk with the authors of the book who will reveal the pervasive organizational obstacles and managerial actions that limit opportunities and what we can do about it. Let's meet the authors of Glass Half Broken and welcome Boris and Colleen to join us on Mike. Love the title, first of all, Glass Half Broken. Everyone is familiar with the term glass ceiling. We're going to explore what that really means. Congratulations to both of you, Boris and Colleen, for uh, the amount of research and digging deep into this. Let me start with you, Colleen. Um, What's the biggest misconception uh, before reading the book? What are people not getting about the fact that women, even though there are more of you than there are us, still need to achieve more in in the sense of equality. Tell us what the misconceptions are. Yes, well, there are more than one. You know, there's more than one, so it's hard to choose. Um, But I think one of the biggest ones that that kind of can touch on some different things is just the notion that um, the lack of women that we see in leadership is really attributable to women's preference or choice, right? That, That the kind of leaky pipeline is about women sort of opting out or, you know, basically not wanting to pursue leadership. It's very clear from the, from, you know, all sorts of research that that's really not true. And, and certainly even just looking at the data in terms of women's educational attainment and, you know, uh, the lean in survey has asked women about, do they aspire to executive positions? Basically women are, you know, pursuing their careers and credentials, et cetera, that should position them for leadership. So all of the evidence suggests that uh, you know, it's not the case that women are not wanting to be in leadership. What is the case is that for lots of reasons, um, organizations and industries often make it very hard for women to stay on the leadership track. And Boris, because both of you come from, from academia, I mean, there's no question that the role of women as students and, and even teachers in academia has blown up. I mean, let's face it, there are more women than ever in, in schools outpacing men. Uh, Jordan, I think um, I think that's uh, spot on, and I think one of the reasons why it took us uh, a long time to uh, uh, put this book together, in addition that for academics, time is irrelevant, um, is that <laughs> we really wanted to cover this across different uh, um, uh, stages, right? So we, if, if uh, we we started with uh, um, kind of seniors at Harvard College, all the way to uh, uh, you know young professionals to. Uh, uh, professionals who are like middle managers, all the way to senior executives and uh, and women who sit on boards, uh, and you know, and, and it's it's interesting in your question, and uh, it's one of the biggest ins- kind of ahas for me that came out from our book was when we when we were interviewing as a team, where we were interviewing um, seniors, men and women at Harvard College, and uh, who basically have the dream, the jobs that they always want in their lives. I mean, the dream jobs. And when we asked them about gender dynamics and this and that, to be honest, I mean, they looked at us pretty much funny, kind of looking around and saying, don't you think we are a majority here, right? I mean, this, those questions might have been relevant 20, 25 years ago, like, you know, but they are not relevant to us now, right? 
And then we interviewed them several times. We interviewed them at the end uh, of uh, Harvard. We interviewed them when they enter organizations and a little bit later. And it's amazing how fast they realize that the organizations that they entered are not the, the organizations that they thought that they would enter, right? The gender dynamics, seeing how some of their male counterparts getting preferential assignments, even as it relates to apprenticeship, how it's not being divided equally between young uh, woman and young man. Um, so uh, it's it's um, it's it's it, it's a, it's a majority in our institution, uh, but uh, the barriers are still there across different levels. They're just different. Right. It's a great petri dish to study a Harvard College, right? Because you've got so many strata. You've got uh, faculty. You've got the administrators. You've got uh, the students themselves, and then the realization that you just talked about. It, you're very self-critical of Harvard. What's been the reaction? Yeah, well, the reaction to the book has, has been really positive. We've been really fortunate with that. I think with the the sort of epilogue we did about the journey of Harvard Business School in terms mm -hmm. of equity and inclusion, not just with regard to, to gender, but more generally, um, was important to us because we wanted to both, we felt like there were some actually some really great lessons about what worked, right, and what we were able to accomplish and kind of the progress we're, we were able to make that other institutions and even outside academia, you know, other organizations could apply. I mean, in a lot of ways, our sort of three-part framework around, you know, inclusive management, structural change, and mobilizing men very much stems from, you know, what we saw at Harvard Business School, all of those components coming into play. Um, but we also, you know, wanted to, you know, kind of take a clear-eyed look at you know, what that journey has been like, you know, kind of where the barriers came up um, and and where we still have to go, right? We, we sort of don't, certainly wouldn't say we've, we're perfect, right? We've achieved, you know, the ideal state of kind of equity and inclusion for everybody. So I think certainly at HBS, you know, mm. you know, our colleagues are, we're all very committed, right? To continuing to be on this journey. So, you know, I think we look at the, the research that we did um, and kind of, you know, telling the story of HBS just to be another resource, right? You know, for what we can learn about what worked and where we still need to go and kind of just use that to kind of keep pushing us all forward on this journey. Yeah, I mean, I was just thinking, Jordan, is, uh, uh, you know, uh, I've written a lot of case studies uh, uh, um, over the years. I think this was one of uh, uh, one of the case studies that really generated a lot of a haas for me, opened my eyes and mm. a lot of things that I did not observe before. And if you think about it, at that time, uh, we, we all got to know each other when we were part of what they called W50 celebration, 50 years of women uh, of MBA students at HBS. And uh, Dean at that time, Dean Noria, basically said, look, we can't talk about the future unless we actually look at acknowledge the past and present. So uh, this case study uh, was born just trying to understand uh, from, uh, you know, how do we actually came from eight pioneering women who were hmm. uh, who entered uh, HBS uh, I think in 1963, right? By the way, the faculty had to vote, right, to uh, uh, to accept a woman at Harvard Business School. Um, and uh, all the way to now, when we are at about 42, 43%, uh, I don't know what the latest numbers are. Mm -hmm. And um, and the journey of the school in which it felt, you know, uh, it, it's, you know, two steps forward, one step back. But it doesn't uh, uh, start unless you put the mirror and say, look, what other th certain things we have done well at certain things that we are coming short of. And... Um, I, I think we as an institution, I think, you know, uh, you know, we are more diverse than before, but one of the distinctions we, may, we make in our book is diversity versus inclusiveness. And diversity is about counting the numbers, inclusiveness is about making the numbers count. 
I think too many institutions focus on counting the numbers. And I think the next frontier is, is, is what can we do uh, culturally and with people uh, practices to make those numbers count. Well, in our immediate gratification society, we see a female fighter pilot. We see a female referee in the NFL. And immediately the story is, wow, women have really made it to the top. I'd like you to both comment on the idea that a lot of this stuff isn't even conscious on the part of systems and organizations, that it's so ingrained. The I hate to use the term old boy network, but why not? It's so part of the culture, even the younger culture, has trouble adapting. So uh, the question is, I'll break it down this way, is it, is it as conscious as it used to be, an attempt to keep women out of the boardroom, or is it simply, I never even thought of that. I have to have that aha moment, as you said, Boris. Uh, who wants to start? Colleen? Sure, I'll start. Um, so I think, you know, one of the reasons we we wrote the book actually is be- was to sort of address the fact that we, we call it, uh, you know, we're at this stalled place in the revolution, the sort of workplace gender revolution, right? Um, Because we have made a lot of progress. You know, if you think about, you know, certainly 50 years ago when those first eight women were, you know, in the Harvard Business School classroom, you know, what the context was for women in in the workforce at the time, it was very different. And a lot of discrimination was perfectly legal, right? We Mm. used to have sex segregated classified employment ads, you know, not that long ago, that was perfectly acceptable and perfectly legal to do. So a lot has changed, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I do think we're at a different place. um, And and researchers actually call this the difference between first generation and second generation bias. So first generation being that explicit discrimination where you say we will not hire women for these types of jobs, right? So much of that has fallen away. I mean, it still crops up from time to time, but really we're in this state of second generation discrimination where it is much more subtle, right? So I think, well, definitely explicit bias still exists. What is very common is, you know, I like how you put it sort of the, oh, wait, I hadn't thought of that, or, you know, that hadn't come to my, you know, come to the fore. So we're really talking about, you know, implicit biases, right, which we've read a lot about what people Mm. call unconscious bias. So kind of these mental associations and shortcuts that we have about different groups of people, but also just more subtle things about our organizational culture and structure and things that are just more embedded. And that is more difficult to tackle. And a lot of the book is really trying to sort of say, okay, let's recognize how far we've come. As Boris was saying at Harvard Business School, you know, things are very different than they were 50 years ago. But yet there's still some of these subtle things in all of our institutions that create barriers. And we wanted to, to kind of help readers understand what that looks like and then how to address it. Boris? Yeah, no, I mean, I just building on Colleen uh, and I, I maybe uh, just putting a mirror in front of, uh, uh, of myself and I'll just say, you know, it's interesting. Um, I, I, I haven't met many CEOs, right, who would sit and say, you know what, I wake up in the morning and I can't wait to discriminate against women, <laughs> right? So it just like, I, you know, most people that I meet is, um, they they want to build more diverse cultures. They want to build more inclusive cultures. And they basically say, look, how, how do we do it? I mean, what's the, what, what do we do? And I think, to be honest, I think maybe we, we could have done better as academics to be able to generate more, um, you know, kind of, I think there's a lot of rigorous research, but to be able to generate rigorous and relevant research, right? That helps executives, that help the managers say, okay, here is what you do. Here's the X, here's the Y, here's the Z. And, and it doesn't give you a thousand batting average, but it helps you to move the organization forward. So one of the things that we spend a lot of time on, and, and that's the second half of our book, is like, how, how, how do you do it? Like, mm. what, what do you need to do in hiring? What do you need to do in development? 
What do you need to do in retention? What do you need to do in compensation and promotion? Which is, by the way, one of the most broken processes that exist in organizations. Uh, to be honest, Jordan, I, that piece uh, took a significant amount of time, including just basically going back, reviewing, was it 50 years of research, Colleen, if I'm, if I'm correct, something like that. And, mm -hmm. and just uh, doing additional research and drive to combine rigor and relevance so we can actually provide more practical advice. I, I will certainly ask you to just give us a tiny taste of some of those suggestions because the book is so in-depth. And you may notice, uh, I'm holding up the book, I dog-ear certain pages. I hope you don't mind, but it's my copy so I can do whatever I want. Now, I dog-ear pages because I wanted to ask you specific questions. And this is a perfect segue for you, Boris. There's a page 96. The heading is gender equality is a men's issue. That struck me like a thunderbolt because I thought good for you and good for all of us to realize it's a win-win when we, we bring other people in, particularly smart women. And I know because I'm married to one. So <laughs> let's talk about gender equality is a men's issue. What do we mean by that? Yeah, no. So and as, as, as our uh, one of our wonderful colleagues, Robin Ely, uh, used to say, men also have a gender, right? So, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's, um, um, and, and this is, uh, this is kind of, our take on it, and I'll say the word are, uh, and, and then I let Colleen to completely disagree, which is the, 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 <laughs> why this partnership has been so great, is um, I, think we, I think we have done as much as we can uh, for, uh, you know, kind of, I'm talking about progress with women advocating for women, right? I think men have to basically do their part. And, uh, um, and because in many, in, if, you, if you look from uh, who runs the processes and practices in organizations, right? It's, 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 it's mostly men. And, uh, you know, even if you think about the apprenticeship models, right? I mean, how do people get development organizations, right? If there is no book on how to become a trader, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, a lot of this is like you, uh, you, you learn by working with other people and so on. So, I mean, we truly believe that we will not be able to make much more meaningful process, uh, progress over the last 20 to 25 years if men don't uh, become more inclusive managers, right? Bigger supporters of uh, of of gender equality and, and at a lot of different levels at a micro level through their behaviors, right? And being able, for example, to call some behaviors that completely unacceptable at the micro level when they, instead of passing judgment that a woman who has two children, right? Definitely doesn't want to go on international assignment. Mm. Just simply just basically it's kind of, would you like to go or not? Mm. Uh, all the way to people who actually run a hiring process, right? With a lot of biases related, you know, kind of similarity bias. Because we like to hire people like us. After all, like we're great. Why wouldn't we? <laughs> all the way to compensation and on. Yeah. It just uh, uh, the more and more um, we have done research on this, and I don't think we plan to write a chapter for men. It's just like we realize that we can write a book without a chapter yeah. on men. Interesting, Colleen. Uh, like your take on that, and then I'll have a follow up for you about moving forward. Go right ahead. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's right. Um, you know, I, I think that the chapter on men was something that we we came to it within the process. It wasn't part of our original outline, but at a certain point we realized, yeah, we really can't write this book without actually calling out the role of men as sort of a pillar of this, this framework. Um, and, you know, what Boris said is exactly right. You know, we really have the opportunity to kind of accelerate momentum by fully engaging men. I mean, I think men are sort of the most underused weapon, you know, in the battle for gender equity. Um, you know, by virtue of the fact that, as Boris said, 
you know, men are more likely to be in these positions of, you know, management and leadership. So I like to think of that actually as really an opportunity that men have, right? They really have this outsized opportunity to make a difference. Um, and even men who are not in positions of formal leadership, again, still have this kind of outsized opportunity. There's research that shows that when men do speak up for gender equity or gender inclusion, they often um, uh, have a greater impact. Their, their words are seen as kind of extra credible and extra legitimate because they're not perceived as being, you know, self-interested, right? It's kind of it makes intuitive sense. You know, it's sort of, they have this extra weight to them when men sort of raise their hand and say, this really matters to me, right? And it really reframes the whole conversation as something that's not about this kind of special interest, you know, quote unquote, of women or a problem for women or how we need to help women or support women. It reframes it into, you know, gender inequality is actually a problem for society and therefore a problem for all of us. And so it's something that we all have a stake in and we all have a responsibility to, to address and fix. The problem that a lot of people have hearing about inclusion and diversity is the sense that we're just going to put women in roles just to say we did. And that is a problem because then you, you're diluting the talent pool. And yet we know that there are talented people out there that can certainly fill these positions. How do we take that issue and move it forward? I, I think if you think about equality more broadly, and gender would be wise, race would be another. I mean, there's concepts, there's mm -hmm. things related to privilege and, and upbringing and, 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 and so on. So I, I think who rise up in, in organizations to top positions is, is, uh, is, is a kind of more complicated uh, um, uh, kind of, uh, there are a lot of factors that influence this. The one thing that I think um, uh, Colleen and I, and uh, you know, uh, kind of agree on, and it's actually based on, on a, a an ongoing research that we have is that we're actually finding out in, in, in one study that uh, if when you look at actually men, uh, 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 they benefit tremendously from having a woman in their organization. So what we measure is the chances of men becoming stars, being the top of the distribution. And it's interesting, one of the factors that contribute to that is if the organizations have a, a higher percentage of women. So, and, and there are a lot of different mechanisms in play, but the bottom line here is that organizations that are diverse and inclusive are good for women, they're also good for men, mm -hmm. right? Because in some ways, right, they allow different people to build their franchises around their own skills or their careers and it's great for a woman, and it's great for uh, Boris Groisberg, it's great for Jonathan Reach, because we're different, right? We tend to think, think that men are more homogeneous group, but we are very different. So organizations that allow women to be give them um, a flexible career path is also very valuable for men. One of the places where this is most obvious in a maybe more subtle way is the boardroom. Again, I'm going to use personal experience here because my wife, Roberta, is actively seeking board work and she's succeeded, but she also knows that there's a uh, almost a blind spot when it comes to women on boards. You might have a company that even caters to women in women audiences and the board is constructed of, you know, eight men and maybe one woman. And a boardroom seems to be one of the last frontiers. Am I correct on that, Colleen? Yes. I mean, in general, right, you see that as you go up in the hierarchy, women get scarcer and, and scarcer, right. right? Just in general, you know, um, that's, again, it's sort of that shrinking pipeline that you see. And then boards, if you think about really kind of, you know, the highest echelon of, of business leadership, yes, women are, are really dramatically underrepresented and particularly women of color. I mean, they're a teeny tiny fraction, um, even of public company boards, which do tend to be more diverse than privately held company boards. When we ask male board members, 
what's the reason why you don't have a lot of women in the board, right? They basically said, we can't find enough qualified women. When we ask female board members the same question, they talked about uh, uh, just, just barriers and networks, right? That's impossible to break in because still majority of people who get on boards, right? They actually get through them through their networks. And I mean, I mean Colin and I, when we talk about it, with like it would basically say, I can't be in 2021, right? Right? How is it possible that people can say they can't find enough qualified? Uh, 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 I mean, this is just like us. That's absolutely astonishing. Right. Especially with with LinkedIn and 70 percent of the country linked in on LinkedIn. Here's another dog eared page that I wanted to have you comment. And this is perfect because it sort of segues into the, the steps necessary to improve. And you have citing many companies who do this and many executives who do this. Inclusive managers provide developmental opportunities and feedback on an equitable basis. It's just one of the many things you can do to make this problem fade and uh, and increase your bottom line, I'm guessing. Tell us more about these developmental opportunities and so forth. Yeah, well, this is a really important one because development is really key, right, to everyone's career path. And as Worth was, was mentioning um, earlier, you know, so much of that happens through people and relationships, right? Especially in a lot of industries, you know, you know, sort of traditional quote unquote white collar industries, you know, uh, like consulting and law, et cetera, you know, finance, you know, there's not sort of this playbook, right? For here's how to be excellent at your job. You learn that, right? Through the people that manage you, through mentors, et cetera. Um, and companies in general, you know, have, you know, broadly speaking, have sort of been more successful um, at bringing people into an organization in terms of uh, increasing diversity, right? Kind of bringing people in, especially at the entry level, you know, a lot. Um, we know a lot about kind of debiasing hiring, et cetera. And so I think more progress has been made there than in kind of moving people through an organization and helping mm -hmm. them develop. And again, you see this in that, you know, kind of shrinking pipeline as you go up each step kind of in the ladder, you see fewer and fewer women and of course, certainly fewer people of color. Um, so development's really important and managers, you know, need to be really thoughtful about how they're kind of giving people those opportunities. Um, and Boris actually mentioned this earlier as well. Something that we heard a lot from women was this problem of kind of the well-meaning manager who, you know, sort of quote unquote, protects them uh, by not offering them an opportunity, right? So saying, oh, well, I'm not going to kind of give her the, you know, I'm not going to offer this assignment to her because it's an overseas assignment, you know, for six months, or it requires relocating. We even talked to one of the women that we profile in the book, a very successful um, Brazilian media executive, um, who uh, very early in her career found out that she, her boss did not um, tell her about a possible role promotion that would have required moving from Rio de Janeiro to Sao Paulo, you know, and, and when she asked him why, he said, oh, well, you've just so recently married. I thought you wouldn't want to, you know, live apart from your, her, your husband. And she said, you know, I thank you for your concern, but actually, you know, we could commute. He might move there with me. Like, this is the kind of role that I that I would be interested in. And she was able about a year later, she said a similar job opened up and she was able to take it. But the point being is that, you know, with all good intentions, managers can sort of 
actually um, move, push women off that leadership track, kind of move them away from the leadership pipeline by not giving those, them those opportunities. It's really, you know, and there's more to it, of course, but this right. is just a great example. It's really about um, instead kind of presenting those different opportunities to women, giving them the choice and agency over how to navigate and maybe balance that with career and family and make sure that they have the chance to step into those assignments that are critical, right? Those are exactly the kinds of things you need to develop and, and advance, right? Or those stretch right. assignments. No to all uh, men out there. You can still be a gentleman and get the door for the lady in the office, but ask her whether she wants the, the gig. Ask her. It's exactly. okay. Uh, <laughs> Boris, any additional comments on the uh, the development in structures and how they work? Uh, no, I mean, this is like Colleen said it right. It's, it's um, um, uh, many uh, uh, organizations and managers and executives discriminate uh, on development and and. and in 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 it doesn't necessarily mean that they uh, have something against uh, uh, against women. It just uh, a lot of this happens in mm. in very very subconscious way. Right. Um, I've got two big issues that we'll cover before we wrap. But uh, I wanted to talk about the all important employee handbook. You know the the statement, the mission statement. This is the an area where y- you can start the process to at least get the troops involved and let them know that you have an, an intention to try to be more equitable. Any thoughts on that? The employee, I call it the employee handbook, the mission statement. Does every company, does every leader need one these days so that people can feel empowered? Well, that is an interesting question. I think especially at this moment in time, right, when when employees in society often are expecting business leaders to kind of make these very strong statements about values, especially in the context of, you know, social justice movements like Me Too and Black Lives Matter, right? We're kind of calling on business leaders in this unprecedented way to sort of say, well, what are your values? You know, what does your company stand for? Um, So it's an interesting question at this time. Um, You know, I mean, I would say a couple of things about that. I would say one, you know, it is important, right, for leaders to, um, you know, talk about what the values of the company are around these issues of equity and inclusion um, and opportunity for people, right, because it does send a message, right? It sends a message about what the priorities are. So if you are a leader who thinks this is important, you do need to be speaking about it. You know, it is um something that you can do kind of as a role model. Um, I mean, the research that I always love to point to comes from um, uh, Emilio Castilla and some colleagues um, at MIT who have this, um, several studies actually, who show that um, when companies just claim to be meritocratic, right, to sort of be fair um, and equitable, they actually tend to have bigger disparities by race and gender in terms of pay and promotion. And that seems weird, right? But actually it makes sense if you think about it because what's kind of going on is that if you're not framing and thinking about equity and fairness as things that you're striving for and kind of everyone needs to be conscious of and needs to be thinking about and you just say, oh, well, we're meritocratic, then it's sort of like, oh, we just assume that everything we do is fair and good, right? It's actually about Um, How can you kind of have an aspirational sort of mission and kind of have a shared collective goal of, you know, all of us, we're we're striving to be as diverse and inclusive as we can be. As Boris said, we're striving to kind of make the the numbers count and make people feel valued and included. Right. I think that's really I don't know if that you can fit that into a mission, you know, an employee handbook. But I think that's the kind of messaging that's important for leaders to to put out there. I have one 
question to follow up on, and you mentioned the Me Too movement, and uh, we need a quick answer on this because I want to get to one more thing. The Me Too movement has been dramatic, and everyone knows that the Harvey Weinstein element of it. Was that a sea change moment, do you think? Was that something that will make inclusivity and getting along and hiring even easier or or what? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I, I do I do think that it was a, a real time of change, right? And you've even seen, um, you know, sort of since the Me Too movement, right, some more attention to these kinds of issues in terms of what are the process, processes that we put in place, right? And you have investors, you know, putting in kind of, uh, you know, statements um, about sexual harassment, uh, you know, sort of trying to kind of make sure that they're explicitly calling out um, that it's not something that, you know, that it is something that would sort of jeopardize the funding, right? Or even, you know, boards are addressing it. I just think take taking it on right more directly. So I think that's important. I mean, it remains to be seen, I think what the long, very long-term impact is. Um, at HBS, we um, do some, some research. We have an ongoing longitudinal study of our alums and kind of their experiences. And so we do ask about harassment experiences um, at, at, in, in the context of that survey. So we carry that out every three years. So it'll be interesting to see over time kind of if what people are sharing and reporting and reflecting on evolves. But I do think it made a real impact in how people are talking about the issues and kind of the level of the organization that's 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 addressing right. it head on and trying to mitigate it or ideally prevent we're, it. We're in a very interesting time and things are happening on that front. Boris, let's talk one more issue that's key, so key, women helping women. Big part of the book, big part of the process. Uh, I see it with my own experience with my wife, who's involved with many organizations and doing a lot of great networking. So uh, it's interesting, Jordan, and maybe that would be the connection because uh, uh, I got introduced to your wife at the HBS program. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's called Woman on Boards, right? That's been mm-hmm. uh, now going on for a few years. Was uh, uh, was put together by HBS and uh, uh, and and uh, and, uh, and uh, a really uh, a good friend uh, of ours, Linda. And, um, you know, what was amazing for me to see is that in many programs that I teach people graduate, move on, and, uh, and that's it. I mean, when they come to HBS for an event, and, they, and what happens in that program is there is now, now movement. Class after class, they bring it together, uh, and they meet, uh, they have monthly calls, they meet once a year, and they kind of set up this infrastructure to help each other, right? Whether they have challenges, opportunities, how to get on boards, and so on. We see more and more of that. Um, and, uh, you know, it's hard to figure out what are the factors that drives there, but we see more of that. And by the way, we also see more men being involved. In Harvard Business School, you had men, uh, our male students raised out and said, we're going to be ambassadors, right? Um, you know, and I think at this point of time, it's, uh, if, if it's not a majority of male students, it's pretty close. But, yeah. um, I, you know, let me just may say 30 seconds is, I think I'm very optimistic, even though 2020 was a really hard year, right? I'm really optimistic about the future because for the first time, I think countries are tired of what's going on, right? So the government has been involved. I think organizations are tired of what's going on. So they're being involved and men and women, men and women are involved. So we have three groups who are pushing in one direction. That's why it's the glass have broken. The title is very uh, important here because it's half broken. It doesn't mean there isn't work to be done. Comment again, Colleen, from your perspective about the role of women in this move to bring equity. I see it in what what my wife is doing. Yeah, 
absolutely. And I, I mean, I, I think the the network of uh, women who've been through the Women on Boards program that Boris leads is really amazing. I mean, I've met some incredible women, you know, through that um, organization, you know, they've really created, I mean, it is very powerful, you know, and there's lots of other examples of that, you know, in the book, we talk about women corporate directors, right, which is a longtime organization um, for, you know, w- women who are serving on boards or who are aspiring to be on boards. Um, and they do a lot of things that have really um, moved more women onto boards, right? They have very kind of tactical, strategic approaches to kind of tackling this problem. So, I mean, I think, yes, there's absolutely, you know, so much potential in um, in people working together. What is uh, happening now is that we're having a conversation about it that we weren't having before. And so many women are sort of stepping up to um, advocate for one another, right, across kind of the economic spectrum. And I think that's really powerful. Well, powerful is when we put our minds together and have smart people working together so well. And the book is called Glass Half Broken, Shattering the Barriers That Still hold women back at work, hopefully not that much longer, the way things are moving. Colleen Ammerman and Boris Groisberg, thank you both for for your time and attention to this issue. Well done. Thanks. Colleen Ammerman and Boris Groisberg, co-authors of Glass Half Broken, Shattering the Barriers That Still Hold Women Back at Work. So nice to have them both join us here on the podcast. Want to thank, as always, Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media for the fine job publishing the podcast. To Ken Carberry and the staff at Chart Productions in Boston, and especially to you guys for subscribing, downloading, rating, and reviewing the podcast, we're just hitting our stride, and I couldn't be happier as more and more people around the world become part of our family. You can find out more about me, the podcast, my book, and much more at jordanrich.com. Until we meet again, be well so you can do good. Take care.